The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source Church can be found at www.thesourcechurch.life. All right, good morning. Would you please join us for the reading of God's Word? Please stand with us as we read. Today's scripture reading is going to come from Psalm chapter 77. In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord, to the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. My soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let, my, let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Selah. When the water saw you, O God, when the water saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. The clouds poured out water. The skies gave forth thunder. Your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Your lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters. Yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. Um, please join me in prayer. God, we, um, first of all, this morning we're grieved at uh, the death of Nancy Formisano. Uh, we thank you for her life. We thank you that uh, through all of uh, her hardships, through many years, um, that you brought her to a place where she relied on you. And God, we ask that her family would see that clearly. Um, we thank you for uh, that her daughters rejoice in the good news of Christ with her. We pray for her grandchildren as they mourn, God. We ask that they would know the comfort of Christ as well. Lord, we ask uh, for, the, for the Bratcher family, for Jerry, Judge, um, for the Lords, as they um, are, wherever they are this morning, grieving together, we ask that you would comfort them, that they would know truth, that they would um, know your smile upon them. And we ask that they would feel the support of this church congregation through it all. Lord, we also do thank you for Father's Day and, and a chance to look up and realize um, some of us the good things that you have given us through our fathers. For others of us, it's a time to lament. Um, 
maybe fathers weren't what they should have been. And for those of us who are fathers now, it's a time for us to uh, refocus, to realize the work that you have called us to in the leadership of our homes, in the care of our children. Lord, I ask that uh, you would minister to the fathers in our midst, that you would waken them up to the, the task at hand, that you would give them courage where they lack it, that you would give them conviction where we've been wishy-washy. In all these things, God, we ask that um, our fatherhood would reflect your fatherhood. That's what we need. And for that to happen, we pray that we fathers would know your fatherly care as we ought to, um, that we wouldn't um, overlook that, but that we would meditate on your words, that we would commune with you in prayer, that we would know your character clearly, firsthand experience. And Lord, we ask that for all of us, as we look at this psalm this morning, you would reflect your character to us. You would give us hope and courage. You would give us conviction. You would show us your face. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today's passage may seem like it's a, a break from the Exodus series, but I think as we go along, you'll actually see that it's more of a complement to it. I've said this before, that just as we, after Christ, need to be gospel-centered in the way we think, um, we need to never be far from the cross and the resurrection. So also, in the same way, we should see that in the Old Covenant, they were always Exodus-centric. The events of the Passover and the Red Sea assured them that God cared about their troubles, that God was powerful to save, and that not even they themselves as his people could get in the way of that. And so throughout the rest of the Old Testament, in passages like this, worshipers of Yahweh would contemplate the Exodus. And so that leaves us with the question, how does the great day of God's salvation in Exodus, how does that change things in the common day of anxious dread, in the mundane time of relentless trouble? See, this psalm is a case study for us, and I wanted to share it with you in part because the Lord has used it in my own life to lift me out of some dark times in the past. You know, 12% of Americans report ongoing problems with anxiety. 15% use antidepressants of some type. 20% of Americans receive mental health treatment or use psychiatric pharmaceuticals of some sort. So it's I think it's becoming increasingly clear that our 21st century lifestyle isn't the road to some sort of utopia. Instead, we see a rapid pace of life. We see heightened pressures to be everywhere at once, to know a little bit about everything. And then there's the constant use of screens and devices for entertainment and communication. And it all leaves us feeling like we can't truly be present anywhere. And our relationships can never be as deep as we long for, and we feel like we're always playing catch-up. And we can check out for a time with a, a vacation or a, a Netflix binge, but those end, and, and they never truly leave us with a rested state of mind. So how do we square these current social issues and, and also our personal problems with an ancient book and a God who never changes? How do we respond to the turmoil of our souls on the day of trouble? The first verse here tells us, I cry aloud to God, 
aloud to God, and he will hear me. On the one hand, it's as simple as that. Cry out to God, he will hear you. On the other hand, we've got to look at the rest of the psalm to think about how we cry to him and to hear how and why he will hear us. And if you're new to the Christian church or you're just generally unfamiliar with the psalms, you should know that these were originally written as songs. We don't know exactly what the original lyre tune was for these words. It it doesn't really matter because I'm sure it went better with the Hebrew than it would with the English. Um, But it would have been a song they would have memorized. Everyone would have known it. It was probably catchy. It was probably memorable. So they could just bring it up in their corporate worship gatherings. They could be like, hey, guys, let's sing I Cry Aloud to God. But then it could also be a song that would get stuck in their heads, just like we get a, a song stuck, you know, from the radio, and then we carry it with us throughout the day. So I hope that this psalm, even though we don't have the original tune, I hope it becomes like that for you. And all of the psalms, I hope they become accessible, well-known, well-used by us. We see that Psalm 77 was written by a guy named Asaph. And we know from Chronicles that Asaph was a Levite. And we know that he served as a singer in the tabernacle after King David brought back the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem. And he wrote at least 12 psalms, including this one. And Asaph, here in this psalm, he's modeling for us an essential use of our memories. We spoke a couple of weeks ago about uh, when we thought about the Passover and we thought about um, the Feast of Unleavened Bread and the consecration of the firstborn back in Exodus 12 and 13. We talked about the power of memory and that it's by remembering and trusting what God has done decisively in the past that we also experience his saving power today. So keep your ears open for how memory is going to play out into the flow of this psalm. First, in verses 1 through 3, we hear a cry of distress. Verses 1 through 3 are a cry of distress. And before we even get to the content of that cry, let's not skip over the words. Uh, At the end of verse 1, it says, He will hear me. He will hear me. How can he be so confident? How can anyone... Be confident that God will listen to your prayer. We should see that there's a baseline relationship here that allows for Asaph to be bold like this. He knows for certain that he is a member of the covenant family of God, the people to whom God has committed himself with many promises, and so he's certain that God will not abandon him. And if you're here this morning and having that sort of certainty about God's commitment seems strange to you, then I'm glad you're here. And it's possible this psalm might feel a little bit like listening in on a family conversation. But I hope that that seeing the honest communication on these pages will keep you from having a sugar-coated view of Christianity. And I hope it will also show you that our God is faithful even in these depths. But what are these depths? We don't know exactly. We don't have a lot of information here about what happened, what was happening to him. To me, this psalm seems deeply personal, like the author's struggling with a situation that's uniquely affecting him. But some people have argued that, well, no, this was a a song for corporate worship, so maybe they're working through a tragedy as a community. Maybe there was a plague or a famine or a great loss in warfare. But if you think about it, even if that's the case, everyone has to deal with that on their own, right? They have, uh, it affects them personally in a unique way. 
Well, the exact cause for grief is left vague, and I think that's good because the psalm is flexible that way. It's timeless, right? It's broad enough to address whatever we're going through today. We do know that the trouble was intense, and it leaves the psalmist honestly wondering, has God rejected me? Has God rejected his people forever? And so he cries aloud to God. Have you ever done that? Have you ever been so troubled that you cried aloud to God? All you could, maybe all you could do is say out loud, oh God, maybe a loved one died. Maybe a serious disease is diagnosed or someone you trusted has a huge moral failing. Maybe your life goals are falling apart. Maybe a spouse betrayed or abandoned you, or a child is stillborn, or a crime is experienced. Or maybe something more subtle than that. Maybe it's just built up over time. Maybe even though you've repented of them, the consequences of your sins are slowly catching up with you. Or maybe something has happened that makes you feel like a failure. Maybe as a parent or at work and and you feel foolish and disappointed. Maybe there's a lingering sickness or barrenness or loneliness. Maybe you've been wholeheartedly seeking God, but your good efforts seem to fail miserably. Maybe there's a spiritual or emotional dryness that has descended. And so you feel numb, and all of life feels vain. But we have a decision to make in times like this. We could resign ourselves to simply being paralyzed until the circumstances change, but I would argue that actually would be a godless response. Asaph, instead, he tells us his initial course of action. He says, In the day of trouble, I seek the Lord. His prayer is intense. He feels distant from God, but he knows that he can't comfort himself. He knows that other people can't comfort him. So looking anywhere else other than to God, that's just, that's just a delusion. And if he were to just put on a stoic face and commit to self-reliance, I'm going to pull myself out of this, well, that would be futile also. Some troubles, you can't, you can't even pretend to do that, to be self-reliant. And it would be sinful to take that approach as well. So at this time, his soul refuses to be comforted, but Asaph is on the very good path of looking to God as his only possible comforter for his soul. So there's this commitment to bring his sorrow to the Lord and also an understanding that that's not necessarily a quick fix. We could say that this sort of tension of we're going to God, but we don't, we're not necessarily feeling comfort from that process, that, that tension that's there, that's really what this entire psalm is meant to address. Verse 2 shows us that he's persistent in his crying out to God. He continues into the night without wearying. We can imagine him just sobbing, pouring out prayers. His hand is stretched out. Imagine a person kind of drowning, and they're just reaching out desperately for something buoyant or a hand to grab them. But there's no rescue, no safety, no resolution. His soul refuses to be comforted. In fact, it's like these meditations on God seem to make his plight worse, not better. His remembrance of God makes him moan. He feels like the spirit within him is exhausted. So as we close verse 3, it seems like crying out to God is simply doing the psalmist no good. If anything, it's making matters worse. What about you? Have you ever felt that way? 
that efforts to pray through a situation with God are, are useless, discouraging. Can you remember those circumstances? Well, in verses 4 through 9, a cry of distress, when it feels unanswered, it turns into a questioning plea. Verses 4 through 9 show us a questioning plea. Why would meditating on God make him moan and faint? Isn't remembering God supposed to make things better? Asaph unpacks his thought process for us here in verses 4 through 9. First, there's an awareness on his part that whatever is troubling him is not somehow separated from what God is doing in this world. He says, you hold my eyelids open. God isn't ignorant of the circumstances. God is not caught off guard by them. Thinking of God hurts in part because he knows that God definitely could have prevented these circumstances if he had wanted to. And hopefully you're aware of that too in whatever hard circumstances you have. The Bible leaves no room for God to be simply unaware of our plight or somehow unable to intervene. If he is silent, it's on purpose. So the psalmist goes on. He says, I am so troubled that I I can't speak. Maybe you've experienced that. Someone asks you what's wrong and you can't even get the words out. You, You open your mouth, but no sound comes out or maybe you just utter nonsense. And so you just end up shutting down and that makes you feel even more alone. So in verse 5, he considers the days of old, the years long ago. He's grasping for some sort of firm foundation. For some, so, so it's like he's rewinding the tape of his life, or maybe the tape of the whole community's experience. He's, he's looking for something in the past, and like a better starting point. He hits play at different points in the past. Maybe if I, if I think about this, if I think about this, then it'll get me to a better place. Maybe it'll make sense of today. Remember, he's a song leader in the community of Israel, so he tries to remember a song in the night. He wants to remember the songs that used to give him courage in the darkness. And that's certainly a great example for us. We know that in the New Testament, in Acts 16, Paul and Silas were singing in prison. It's a great example. But as Asaph shows us here, right responses don't always lead to better feelings, at least not immediately. Here in Psalm 77, this intentional remembering, this diligent searching for a song, it actually leaves him feeling more dead inside. He remembers God's promises, but then he comes up at a loss for how God could possibly be keeping his word. And I can imagine that if you're not a Christian, these sorts of challenges to God by Asaph might be confusing. You might be tempted to think, really, is this a sort of life of faith that's supposed to seem desirable to me? This God doesn't even show up when his people are in need. Is he not powerful? Is he not good? These people's lives don't seem better because of trusting in him. Martyrs, misfits, suckers, people who take this seriously are just left screaming desperate prayers into the wind. That could be one take on Asaph's questions here. But I think this sort of questioning also makes some Christians feel uncomfortable too. They think, "Mm, should we really be talking to or about God in this way? It feels irreverent, even belligerent, to accuse God of forgetting to be merciful. 
to suggest that maybe his promises won't come true or his love has failed to come through? What makes this sort of questioning any different from sort of the bitter and mocking sneers of someone who's about to walk away from the faith? Like maybe we should get in Asaph's face here and tell him off instead of taking his words and emulating him. Both of those concerns are missing the nature of true Christian faith. Both are flattening the Christian experience to look at it as just this series of transactions. So the first person, the unbeliever who thinks that such questioning proves the illegitimacy of the faith, his or her assumption is that Christianity is just a blind faith in a deity that's meant to result in a blessed life. And therefore, if there seems to be a lack of peace or prosperity or general upward trending in the life of a believer, then it must be evidence that the whole thing is just fake anyway. Thankfully, the Christian life portrayed in the Bible is not like that. It's nothing like using prayers and good deeds as coins to access goodies from a cosmic vending machine. Thank God the Christian faith is actually not dependent at all upon getting our act together so that the Almighty will allow us to secure some good things for ourselves. On the contrary, it's all about how our misguided attempts at morality are actually worthless to him. But through a dynamic relational process, through ups and downs, through his free gift, he wants to mold and reshape our lives so that they will actually be infinitely better than any temporal pleasures that we're tempted to focus on exclusively. And Asaph here is staying engaged in dialogue with God, even through hardship, because he knows that God is benevolent but complex in his dealings with his people. And as for those who are feeling the the second objection, like Asaph's questioning seems irreverent in nature. Shouldn't Asaph, shouldn't he keep his doubts silent? Shouldn't he submit to God's timing for change? Shouldn't he speak positive truths like, God is good all the time. After all, the people of God are supposed to be joyful. Shouldn't he plaster a smile on his face until circumstances change? If these are your impulse responses in times of trouble, then I think this psalm might be here especially for you today. And I want to explore with you the honesty that God calls us to in prayer and the honesty in how we talk about our experience with him. First, let's note that these are questions. They're not cynical statements like, God doesn't remember his promises to me. So what I want you to see is that Asaph's willingness to grapple with God is actually a sign of his desire to be close to God, even while he may sound like he's struggling with him. Biblically speaking, this, this sort of struggle or striving is vastly preferable to the response of people who don't even want to engage with God to deal with their troubles. And I'm often speaking about myself there, too, even though, you know, I have no trouble speaking at length about my problems to, to any person on the street. Or I also don't have a problem further discouraging myself by just kind of stewing on it over and over again, rehashing it in my mind. It's rarely my first response to go to God. Why is that? Am I seeking redemption from people? rather than God? Or do I doubt God's goodness? Do I think he's going to thump me? Do I doubt his patience? Do I fear that he's going to condemn me for being frantic and fearful? But emotional questions are expressed 
by even the greatest of those who love God in the Old Testament. Job had no trouble asking God why in the world he even let him be born. Habakkuk felt freedom to basically ask, God, do you even care about justice? Because I'm having a hard time seeing it. And God didn't condemn either of these men, but instead he patiently instructed them. Do you feel that freedom to simply pour out your heart before God? God, what are you up to here? Will you keep me in this hopeless place forever? Our words may be sloppy, our thoughts may be irrational, our desires may be confused, but God wants to shepherd our souls through that process. So the use of questions can sometimes be the path to rediscover and to a fuller understanding of who God really is. So there's a lot of psalms that ask, why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? Why do you cast us off forever? Will you forget me forever? Why do you cast my soul away? And in asking these questions and expressing these sorts of doubts, the heart of the psalmist actually comes to rest. Because deep down he knows that the God of Abraham can't deny himself and won't cut himself off from his own people. So in these questions, there's actually hope. And God is pleased with our running to him for relief from our fears and frustrations rather than running away from him to mere people or to the fleeting wisdom of this world. Well, just like after verse 3, there's a pause written in the music of the psalm after verse 9. How long are we meant to pause there between verses 9 and 10? How long did it take Asaph himself to get his heart and his mind from verse 9 to verse 10? We don't know. And we should be patient with ourselves and with others if the gap there seems longer than it should. But eventually verse 10 does come, and it's the turning point of the psalm. Verses 10 through 20 do appear, and they represent a resolute remembrance. A resolute remembrance. That's how the psalm ends. So verse 10 Then I said, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. Okay, he's going to remember something. What makes this decision to remember any more effective than in verse 3, when remembering God simply made him moan? Or verse 5, which just led to frustrated questioning? It's possible that there's nothing different this time around. Maybe he simply needed to persist and try again, and the Spirit blessed the second or third attempt, but not the first. I do think that there's, there's a lesson about persistence here. But it's also possible that he's thinking about God in a different way this time around. Maybe before, his thoughts about God kept drifting to, to thoughts about God's heavy hand of discipline uh, for his people who have wondered. I mean, we know that out of God's kindness, he often does thwart our plans. He blocks our path until he has all of our hearts. That discipline would certainly be a true meditation on God, but it wouldn't necessarily be the one to get us out of the rut of despair in the time of trouble. Or maybe he was thinking about past times of peace and flourishing in his walk with God. Maybe those were his songs in the night, and those can be sweet remembrances. But in the hour of trouble, nostalgic sentimentality has little power to lift us out of despondency. And so, in verse 10, Asaph turns to a very specific set of remembrances about the Lord. He appeals 
to the years of the right hand of the Most High. To speak about the right hand of God, that's a metaphor to speak about his saving power. And so the years of his right hand are a remembrance of times when he powerfully redeemed his people. Redemption, that's what's reiterated even down in verse 15. And um, the name of God, Most High, in verse 10, El Elyon, that name goes back to Melchizedek, who said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, in Genesis 14. So it's emphasizing God's control over all of the created order. All of the created order. Do you remember that in the day of trouble? And we see Asaph turning from contemplation of his own circumstances instead he turns to a contemplation of Yahweh's deeds and wonders and works and his way that is holy in seeing God as holy he's then aware of God's otherliness he knows God is not like us his ways are higher than our ways there's there's awe there's mystery we're not able to grasp the fullness of his purposes and then this makes Asaph say what God is great like our God And that thought echoes the song of Moses after the Red Sea crossing. Actually, we're going to look at that next week in in Exodus 15. And in in this psalm too, the Red Sea is exactly what Asaph goes on to remember. Notice the graphic imagery in verses 16 to 18. It's talking about the waters were afraid and trembled. God's arrows flashed on every side. His thunder was in the whirlwind. His lightnings lighted up the world. The earth trembled and shook. At first glance, we might think like, whoa, there's, there's kind of a lot that Moses left out of his account in Exodus. He didn't mention any earthquakes or battles with water. Remember, this is poetry. And the focus here in the Psalms is less on reporting things as they actually appeared and more on reporting things as they actually meant. Poetry isn't a detailed report like we find in historical writings like Exodus or Samuel or Acts. This is looking at the true meaning of events. Um, A similar song, um, Deborah's song in in Judges 5, looks back at the battle that just happened, and it uses all this cataclysmic imagery. Why? Because it's poetry. So the meaning that the psalmist is getting at through this poetry is that when God acts, the world is stirred up and changed. Evil order is disbanded. The forces of chaos are subdued. Everyone is forced to pay attention. And so if you're his enemy, like Pharaoh's forces in Exodus 14, who would be trapped in the sea, there's nothing more horrifying to imagine than God most high. But if you're his friend, there's nothing more awesome to behold. In the last two verses in this psalm, recall that you led your people like a flock by Moses and Aaron. It ends with the mention of these two historic leaders of God's people, who you'll remember had plenty of doubts and questions of their own. And yet God met them in their frailty, and he accomplished great things through them. And those acts are to get taken together. They amount to God leading his people as a good shepherd. So even though Asaph's lament began with this feeling of sort of frantic desperation, it ends here in a place much closer to the pastoral feeling of the 23rd Psalm. We remember the nature of our God who leads us through what seems like death on purposeful paths of righteousness. But one thing that I really love about this Psalm is its vague ending. There's no connection back to Asaph's circumstances whatsoever. 
there's no con conclusion like, well, after contemplating these things, I felt better. The pressure led up, and God is good. No, there, there's not even a statement of like, you know, it was all worth it because I know exactly what God was up to all along. No, you don't. God is up to a thousand different things. And how do you know when the day of trouble is over? Our lives don't work like that as clean little chapters. No, for all we know, the confusing circumstances for Asaph remained for months or years or maybe even a painful illness that lasted the rest of his life. But whatever his personal outcome in the short run, Asaph has remembered his larger role and destiny within the people of God. And that would be more than enough to sustain him. I believe that everyone here is in one of three different camps today. Either A, the day of trouble is upon you right now. And this passage seems very timely. Or B, the day of trouble is just around the bend. And today's message is God's gift of preparation for you. Or C, the day of trouble seems to be a lingering reality that you just feel has come to define your life. I want you to know that whichever category you find yourself in, Psalm 77 has good news for you. I don't know the specifics of your trouble, but God does. And as we said at the start, this psalm is more than broad enough to apply to whatever trouble you're going through. And the first piece of good news is that Jesus Christ has suffered in the plight of Asaph in this psalm even more fully than Asaph himself and certainly more than you or me. Remember, the psalms were Jesus' prayer book. He knew these words. He used these words that are before us today. We can imagine him in his 30-some years on earth turning to these pages through the years as he, he dealt with hardship or slander or rejection or sickness and death of those he loved or tragedies in the lives of people all around him who were under the sway of sin. Hebrews tells us that in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So we can pray like this with confidence because our Lord did so also. And we, we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane. Or on the cross when he claimed for himself the questioning statement of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And as the father vindicated Jesus and restored him to the experience of joy and fellowship with him. So also he will do for those in Jesus' footsteps. Jesus is the one of whom it can truly be said. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Is that the Lord you follow? Are you on that path? So Jesus is our model in crying out to God as in the first half of the psalm. But Jesus is also the very God whose saving acts we remember in the last half of the psalm. 1,000 years after Asaph, Jesus' disciples saw with their own eyes on the stormy sea of Galilee that his path was through the great waters. And that wasn't the first time commanding the sea or leaving unseen footprints on the water. The book of Jude, verse 5, actually tells us that it was Jesus who saved a people out of Egypt. 
The second person of the Trinity was there. He was active at the Exodus even before his incarnation. And 1,400 years after the Exodus, Peter, James, and John saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, and he was accompanied by the same Moses as well as Elijah. And Luke specifically says that these two historic visitors asked Jesus about the Exodus he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. They drew a connection between what happened at the Red Sea and what was about to happen on the cross. And so should we. Asaph recalled crossing through the Red Sea, even though it happened centuries before he was born. But the greatest act, it, it was the greatest act, right, that he knew at that time. The old covenant people of God, that was what they knew of God's salvation, the Passover, the Red Sea. He was able to live in that moment as if he was there because it did apply to him even in that day. And as Moses stretched out his hand, God delivered them from bondage, passing through what seemed like death. And they rose again out of the waters on the other side, watching their enemies destroy behind them, setting them on a sure path to the promised land. But like we talked about last week, there is a greater Moses. Jesus accomplished your exodus on the cross outside Jerusalem. And as he stretched out his hands, the earth again trembled and shook, and his path was through the deepest waters of sin and death. But he came out on the other side of the tomb, having disarmed the enemies of God and freed us to live in a sure hope of life with God in the new heavens and new earth. This is the greatest act of deliverance that God has ever accomplished, and it makes us who we are as a people. It defines our true reality even when our circumstances look bleak and hopeless. And this is the point of the whole psalm, that when it feels like there's no redemption for you, when it feels like you can't be pulled out of your circumstances, praise God for the redemption he has already accomplished. When the waters of chaos seem to stand between you and the life that God created you to know, when the enemies of the evil one seem to be hunting you down to capture your will, remember. Remember how you are already delivered. Remember the Christ, the Christ event. Remember the cross and resurrection and tap into that collective memory of the church recorded on these pages. Use that to define your reality, to reorient you on your only lasting hope. And after that, your circumstances may remain unchanged. But you will be changed. And that's what God is doing. And maybe even like Asaph, you're one who's appointed to lead others in worship. Maybe you have a ministry role in the church. Or maybe you're a father, husband here today. You're the leader of your household. Or maybe you're the most reliable Christian voice in your workplace. And the way that you live your life is meant to cause others to worship as well, and yet you find yourself dry and despairing and panicked with perceivably nothing to offer. Well, I hope that you notice Asaph's honesty. He doesn't put on a smile and fake it. And Christian leaders who do live out of a facade that pretends to always be joyful and healthy and stable, who never acknowledge their own weaknesses and sadness and failure, those are often the very leaders who destroy themselves and others along the way. So take time to lament before God and then remember and take courage because God's promises are not 
at an end for all time. His grace is available to you again today, but it requires that you zoom out from your own circumstances. You have to connect with the experience of the people of God across time and then speak and act from that experience, knowing in faith that that is your experience also. In the day of trouble, appeal to the ears of the right hand of the Most High. Cry out to Him. Hear yourself articulate those words. And then rest in the fact that He will hear you. Let's pray to Him now. God of Moses and Aaron, we ask that you would shepherd each one here through whatever troubled waters face us. Help us to remember the finished work of Jesus because we trust that even as we have to wait to see your rescue in different circumstances, you have already rescued us from darkness. We thank you that that is our truest story. Give us the grace to live in it. Amen.